Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and join me in Luke chapter 19? Luke 19, if you would like some notes uh, there in the bulletin, our handout, if we'll follow along this morning, as well as you can go online, parkwaybaptist.org, and you can find those to the latest message and follow along digitally. You can add your own notes in, and then at the end, email it to yourself. If there's any notes you want to fix, uh, please do. Put some good stuff in there and email it to me instead, and then the next time, I'll, uh, I'll have some better notes. Luke 19 is where we're going to go. As, uh, as we've noticed this morning with this Palm Sunday, there's been quite the concentration on that theme and that focus. Traditionally, uh, today is known as this Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. I'm talking and celebrating and reflecting on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. Before we read the biblical account here in chapter 19 and verse number 28, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what that, what that kind of meant, what was taking place. You know, when Jesus was entering into the city of Jerusalem, he was uh, very different from what the king's arrival would have been. For the king's arrival would have been a great celebration, and so much different was that moment than it is even today with the coronation of a king. The coronation of Jesus Christ that day as he entered into Jerusalem was attended by the very lowly, and it was ignored by the nobility. And so this was so different from what a king would be given and what they would have been recognized by. Now, this was certainly something that Jesus has already been prophetically announced in Zechariah 9.9, that this would take place, that he would arrive in a very humbly condition on riding on a donkey. But just like his birth, this was nothing of great celebration for a whole lot of people of nobility, just a bunch of lowly, humble people there to... Uh, experience work on the behalf of all humankind. He is going to give of himself. And so as he enters to Jerusalem that day, he knows that this is not about him in this moment of reflection and celebration, but rather just a step in the preparation for what is really about to happen. We know that as he enters into Jerusalem, we're getting ready to begin the Passion Week. The week where he is going to still continue to pour of himself out to his disciples. He's going to pour of himself out to others, yet still knowing that the moment is going to come a full betrayal and arrest with the false verdict that will be pronounced on him for him to be crucified. When we read in this text, it's a pretty amazing thought because what's taking place is there is this rejoicing and praising by many of these followers. We talked about these disciples last week, many who would come to the place where they said, uh-uh, you mean I've got I've to sacrifice and I've got to have endurance and I've got to give of myself and full surrender to follow you? That's when many turned and never followed him again. So the disciples that are gathered here in Jerusalem are ones that are there for the Passover. They've heard this name Jesus Christ and they know that something amazing is happening with this, this parade that is taking place. So what they're going to do and the motions that they will go through are no different from times where a king would come into town with some great celebration over his enemies. Now this praise and worship, this rejoicing is going to soon turn to screams of condemnation in just several days later. So now in our text here, as we put all these pieces together, this Palm Sunday is yet a very significant event not only to the people of Jesus' day, but also to Christians throughout history. 
And so as we celebrate this Palm Sunday, let's remember some things about this momentous occasion. In verse number 28 of chapter number 19, Luke, he says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never a man sat, will loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way. They found even as he had said unto them, and as they were loosing the colt, the owner thereof did say unto them, why loose ye the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. And so they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had, they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Hmm. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. This morning we're going to look at this text here, that Jesus Christ is going to bring out from his followers. The multitude of disciples who would cry out, Hosanna, and then the many of the disciples of his inner core who would still, still remain true with a very genuine worship. And so this morning, let's look at this missional worship as we dig into Luke 19. Father, we pause to pray. Thank you for our time of worship today that has lifted our voices, pointed our heart and our mind on you. Our direction of worship has been to you today. Now this morning, I stand before your church with a very high responsibility to communicate your message. And so I would ask that what we say today would be from above, and I pray that it would work in our heart. I pray that conviction, encouraged, also challenged. Help us to find conviction in the places we need conviction, and then bring us to that decision point where we take your word and we apply it to our life. So we look forward to that time together today. We, we glorify you. We praise and honor you for what will be accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen. So we know that based on the story that Jesus rode in on the back of the donkey, the disciples had laid out their coats on the donkey that was borrowed. He came into town coming from Mount of Olives. Zechariah 9.9 gave us the prophecy back hundreds of years before that this would take place. And the multitudes came out to welcome him, laying before him their coats and the palm branches. And they were so excited about this very moment. A lot of hype. The people had hailed and praised him as the king who would come in the name of the Lord as he rode into the Temple Mount area. As he rides into the Temple Mount area, this is where he's going to spend time teaching people. He's going to heal them, perform more miracles. This is where he drives out the money changers, the, the merchants who had made his father's house a, a, a place of a den of thieves. Now, the story has some really great content to it. It's a, it's a, a, a captivating story that we talk about this time of year, and it's one that we, though, can look to see some really crucial application and some lessons taught by these disciples. So let's look first at, um, at, at the negative part, because in verse 37 and 38, there is this misguided worship. 
In verse 37, when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Then he continues that they said, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now there are several descriptions that stand out among these misguided worshipers. Because the first thought that we can see about them based on their real response later in this week is that their their worship was shallow. Their worship was a worship that lacked depth, it lacked meaning, and it lacked a true source. It wasn't really in them. Now, notice the verse tells us that they were doing this because of based on things that they had seen and heard, things that they had, uh, that they had experienced on the outside. But there was nothing that had changed internally with them. Remember last week, we talked about how this group of people just really enjoyed seeing the miracles, and they really enjoyed seeing the, the spectacle of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry in dealing with people. So this is what they're basing their worship on, and we have to understand that they were, they're together in Jerusalem from a lot of different places. They have come to celebrate the Passover, and so this, these are not just citizens of Jerusalem. They've come from all around the region. They have traveled as family units. They have come to Jerusalem trying to find lodging. They are now doing this celebration of the Passover. They've got a long to-do list, a lot of things that they need to accomplish while there, And there's a lot of hype that is built into this exciting event called the Passover. The Passover had turned into this point as the money changers are in the temple mount. They're bringing some of the best lambs. Hey, don't bring your best lamb from home. Just come to Jerusalem and we'll have one and we'll sell it to you. And and we've got some uh, exchange over there at the other booth and you can exchange your currency and then you can come over here. And that's when Jesus Christ saw all of this commotion happening in a commercialized Passover event. And some of you have been to big ball games, and you've gone to these ball games, and there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of excitement. And, uh, and, and usually, um, the playoffs are getting ready to happen. Tampa Lightning is on the ice, Orlando Magic, so we've got them from both angles. They're in the playoffs. The Lightning better straighten out. Down 2-0 to Columbus? What's going on? I mean, let's park there for a minute, okay? But... I know that going to a sporting event like that, they are, they are purposely, intently, they know how to get the hype up. So they've got, the, they've got the graphics and they've got the music, they've got the sound, and they even put it in front of you. It's over event. There is so much hype, there is so much energy, there is so much going into this that it becomes very natural for them to be involved in this worship moment of Jesus Christ. This is a misguided worship. It is a shallow worship that lacks depth, lacks meaning, and lacks a true source. Worship that lacks depth will never be properly focused. A worship that is not then therefore properly focused is never going to be genuine. You know, some people like to worship their form of worship. So like they just can't wait to have that feeling. And so they anticipate a feeling, an emotional moment. But that emotional moment just happens at that time. That's why we're very careful with our presentation of the gospel and then the drive for the Holy Spirit's conviction for you to come to a place of decision in the life. It's not an emotional moment that says, right now I can't do anything but do that decision and then they go and live a carnal life because that's not true discipleship. That's not a true call to follow Jesus Christ. That's a shallow worship and lacking a true source. 
When the true source encamps in our life, something so drastically happens with us and who we are. Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us that. So the old man is different. The new man is a new creation in Jesus Christ. So these disciples, this emotionally based worship, it can be genuine, but it definitely was not for them in this moment. So they were looking for an emotion. They were looking for a moment, for a feeling, for some experience at that time. So not only do we see that it's shallow, but it's also mundane. The misguided worship is mundane. It's a, a worship that has become dull and routine. It, it lacks substance. And so the scene of this multitude throwing palm branches, this was not an uncommon event. Parades would happen. And remember, the Jews are under the Roman Empire, the Roman rule. And so in the Roman rule and Roman Empire, it would be often that a king would march back into a city on the back of a, of a horse as he's going into battle or back of a donkey as he's kind of pronouncing peace. And the only time that they would come and that there would be this great celebration of palm branches on the ground would be if the king had conquered over 5,000 of his enemies in that war or in that battle. Now, can you imagine only like 4,998 because what happens then is if it wasn't 5,000, you just get a, an ovation, okay? So like, yeah, good job, king, good, all right. But no, if it was 5,000 plus, it was palm branches. It was your cloaks on the ground. It was this huge praise and huge celebration. So why we say this was mundane was this was nothing new that was happening in Jerusalem. This was not like, oh, this is Jesus. Okay, so this is big deal. This is how do we go over the top? How do we do something special? No, this was just mundane, misguided worship because they were used to this scene. Remember, the emotion of Passover, somebody's riding into town on the back of a donkey, so this is just something that is going to be of a routine for them. Now, routines are good until they become bad. Routines are fine until they become deep ruts in our life. Routines are healthy until they become misworship of being mundane, is that sometimes worship has become so dull and routine in Christians' lives that um, it's, just an, it's just a motion for them. Now, I understand that for all of us, with different personalities, we worship differently, certainly in a corporate setting. I know some of you who are really quiet in your corporate setting of worship are probably the same person that belts it out to the top of your lungs in your car while you're listening to music or in the shower when you think nobody's around, okay? So I understand, but sometimes with our different personalities, you're not necessarily the one that is over-emotional or very expressive in your worship. I get that. But I'm not talking about the outward motion. Uh, the lifting of hands totally fine with me. I think it's a part of the scripture. Clapping together of a celebration to God uh, is totally a part of scripture. Um, the shouting of, of hallelujah, amen, this confirmation of an I am in agreement to what, we, what is being said or what is being done or together in this partnership. As long as that doesn't get out of hand, we don't want anybody running up and down the aisles barking, okay? So just cool it a little bit, okay? But what we do want is it's okay to express what God's doing internally, and sometimes that can come out, and, uh, and that's okay. But what I am mostly concerned is not with this every once in a while or with this of receiving of what God is doing in that moment. It's not a hallelujah and an amen, a woo, this is good. It's not that's my concern. It's the person who is hard rock, who cannot be moved or changed 
by a worship moment that the Holy Spirit wants to use in your life. That's the concern. Because for these worshipers who are in that moment of worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Prince of Peace. By the way, notice the kings would arrive on a horse when they were ready to go to battle. The king would arrive on a donkey to show a picture, a movement of peace. And so the Prince of Peace arrives in a humbly state and condition on the back of a donkey. And so it's a moment that says, what is it that God wants to do with my internal worship? What is it God wants me to express? How am I moved with emotion? And some of you cry over Hallmark movies way before you ever cry about the work of God in your life. Some of you cry over your football team losing 10 games in a row before you ever do God working in your heart to pull you to himself. So this emotion is healthy and we cannot become in this rut with our worship, singing the same songs again. I stand, and I sit, and I sing, and I listen, and I hear, and I do. It needs to become, that's why today, purposely at the very beginning, we wanted to just pause and say, hustle and bustle, coming and going. We hurried in, we sat down, we talked, we laughed, we fellowshiped, and now we sit and we're ready to go. Okay, tell me what's next. That's when we, sometimes we just need to be still and say, am I really ready to worship God? Like, am I totally in tune and focused about what I am getting ready to encounter? We just don't want church services to go and function and follow into its pattern and place every week and just say, after 50 years, I went to church. We want there to be that expression of God internally working, not only corporately, but certainly individually in our lives. And so here, the next thought is, is that this misguided worship was also selfish, It's a worship that has lost its true focus as the audience of one, Jesus Christ. The great misunderstanding was that the people of Israel thought that the Messiah was going to enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works, he would take his throne and free Israel from Rome. Don't forget that. Don't forget the details of what is going on with Israel at this moment. They looked at Jesus as being their savior here on earth. They wanted Jesus to come in, to take his throne, and then to free them from, this is the time when we will break away from the Roman rule. This is time when we will separate ourselves. But we must understand that they had a limited vision of what Christ's purpose was. Jesus Christ had always emphasized, he was never there. Remember when they tried to make him king? Remember when they would try to raise him up? What would he do? He'd scoot out the back door and get to another city so he could continue to do the Father's work and mission. So Christ was not here for his own proclamation, for his own uh, bringing of self, but the people wanted that so much. Now, biblical worship, what it does is it contextualizes the Christian life. It puts us where we are and it puts it in context to say, how am I going to live? And it's not about us, it's about glorifying the God who created us and saved us. Tom Rayner said this, he said, I can't put a specific date on it, but somewhere in the 20th century, believers, particularly in America, began to shift from an attitude of self-sacrificing service to God and worship of God to consumer-focused, self-serving attitudes We are focused on our own selves, our own needs, and our own preferences. It's hard to find God in this scenario. 
sinful and self-serving attitudes have caused too many churches to split. Selfishness and self-serving attitudes, this sinful spirit has caused too many pastors to leave the ministry. It's caused too many families to be divided. It's caused too many disruptions. One of the great core values of of Parkway Baptist Church is centered on this this thought of being Christ-centered, not man-focused. So it's not me and it's not you. So this is God's church. He'll build his church. He'll raise up his church. He'll protect his church. He'll provide for his church. And thankfully, he uses us to be a part of that. Isn't that incredible? But when we look at that, then this is not about you and me. This is about the audience of one, about Jesus Christ. That's what I love about the balance of Parkway. At the balance of Parkway is that we're pursuing to be very diverse, multi-generational, multi-ethnic. And within that pursuit means that we're going to bring to the table a lot of different appetites and a lot of different things. And when we bring that to the table, though, we come with a spirit of unity. Because though we're very diverse in where we grew up, the churches we've been a part of, the way our pastors in the past have always functioned, we can still gather as God's local church, being unified together on God our creator, the name of Jesus Christ, and the powerful true gospel message. And so you may do things a little bit different over here than this group over here, and then middle section, you're just out of your own world, I know that. And so when we look at all of us being so different from one another, we can still partner in the pursuit of what God has called us to do. And so as a local church, we don't waste our time and energy bickering with one another about a song selection or about a style or about a a color or about a a, a project. We talk together about the, the mission that God has called us to do, and that's to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them whatsoever he's commanded us to do. And so that's our passion. That becomes our motive, and that becomes our our unified um, central point as we move together. So here, we would find that their worship was selfish. Worship cannot be designed for self. It is not about us. It is all about God. There's a story that's told about Franz Hayden. He, um, He was present at the Vienna Music Hall where his oratorio, The Creation, was being performed. And he was weakened by old age, and the great composer was confined to a wheelchair as he would sit, listen, and and watch his his production being done by, called the creation. So as the majestic work was, was moving along, the audience was caught up with tremendous emotion by the lyrics and by the music. And when the passage, um, and there was light, when that was sung, When it reached the chorus and the orchestra burst forth with such power that the crowd could no longer restrain its enthusiasm, that they all stood to their feet and they rose in this vast assembly in a spontaneous applause of celebration. Hayden struggled to stand and as he did from his wheelchair, he motioned for everyone to be silent. And when he was quiet, With his hand, he pointed in a shaky form toward heaven, and he said, No, no, not from me, but from thence comes all. He realized at that moment, having given glory and praise to the Creator, he fell back into his chair, totally exhausted by giving all glory to God. When was the last time we were totally exhausted? by giving glory and praise back to God. 
we like to take a lot of credit for ourselves. We like to fall back on a lot of our own ways and our own procedures and our own things that we're able to accomplish. But man, this is not about us. He, greater than I, John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. Another description of this misguided worship is that it was temporary. A worship, uh, you're going to find that um, the crowd now begins to reject Jesus Christ, chapter number 23. You see where the crowd, um, the crowd was more oriented on themselves than on God because it only took a few loud voices to get everybody else to think the very same thing. Even though they were lies, deceit, and false accusations, the crowd began to have a problem with Jesus Christ, the one that they were just worshiping, the one that they were singing glory and praises to, taking off their coats, taking the palm branches, reading him in. It was all a misguided worship because it was so temporary. So the question for all of us is this fickle pattern that we struggle with too often, what does it take to get our worship off of God? What happens in our life? What shakes our core? What trembles our foundation? What does it take to take our worship and eyes off of God and put them on ourselves because of a temporary worship? Well, that's the negative side. That's the crowd that we're worshiping, but there is a meaningful worship that took place with his disciples. In verse 29 through 32, we see in verse number 29 again, he says, came to pass when he come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples. He said, go into the village over against you in which you'll enter. You shall find a coat tied whereon yet never a man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And so they did it. And the question was asked, but the donkey came. So what does this meaningful worship look like for us today? First of all, worship as stewards. Not as owners, but as stewards. Jesus called the disciples to go into the town. And when they arrived, they were to find a colt. And they would go through these motions as Jesus had called them to do. And the lesson here is that God owns it all. Can you imagine if you were sent to go get a donkey? And the owner looks at you like, um, what are you taking my donkey for? Hey, should we really tell him that Jesus said to just take him? Yeah, yeah, I think we should. He told us. Okay, um, the Lord has need for him. I wonder how this is going to go. Okay, go ahead, go. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, thanks. I thought we were going to have to sneak out with this donkey. You understand that in God's leading, how he had prepared that owner to give up his unridden donkey, I don't know. But that helps us to see that God owns all. So what is it that God wants of you? What is it that you're holding on to? Well, this is my donkey that's never been sat on, and I know that God wants it, but it will benefit me a whole lot more. So we see this worshiping God as good stewardry, possessions, we give them to God. We take our, our funds and we give them to God. God, here's my bank account, lead and direct me. If he leads in your heart to give, to give, you say, well, it doesn't make sense because that's my, that's my unused account that that I really have been holding on to. And God says, yes, but here's a huge need. And I want to give through you so that I can bless you even more. So what donkey are you holding on to? Also, to be good stewards of our professions or our job. How are you using your career to worship and to glorify God? How about your family? Have you ever thought about this? Your spouse, your children, 
Okay, God, if you want my children, please <laughs> just take them, close the door behind you, okay? No. But God has given us the privilege to be good stewards with our children, with our spouse, with our family unit. So how are you investing in them and how are you worshiping God with them? So that's where these family talks come into place. This is where spiritual leadership happens. This is where we can just have real, real development moments. And I understand having kids in your home, it's a very stretching and testing time. And I know Natalie and I, we paint this picture of a family that's got it all together. And if you think that, then mission accomplished because we have you fooled. Um, but we're learning through the process too. And um, one of the sessions we're going to do, we're going to do in two weeks. It's the Sunday after Easter. And um, during the Connection Class Hour, we're going to do a, a parent forum. Um, and we're just going to talk about how do you share Jesus with your kids? How do you, how do you have family talks? How do you just... How do you just incorporate Jesus into your family life? Because that's not always natural. And so how do we do that? And so we're going to do that in a couple of weeks. Um, but we've we got to be good stewards of our family. We need to be good stewards of our, our health, of our abilities, of our ministry opportunities. So God has created us all with talents, gifts, and abilities. We need to be good stewards of those and use them for his honor and glory. Secondly is we need to worship consistently. One of our core values, it says this, authentic worship is the mark of our lives. We strive to make every day Sunday by walking with and honoring Christ in all that we do. So we want this authentic worship to be a mark, an identity of our lives. If worship is the only, or if Sunday morning is the only time you do worship, you're missing out on something incredible with your Christian journey. Because authentic worship is something that happens every day, and it happens everywhere. Worship is not what takes place on Sunday, but it's what happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. It's what happens in our homes. It's what happens in our job. It's what happens on the highway. It's with our friends. When no one else is around, it is worshiping God. It was the cutest thing just recently. Brooklyn was in this pattern of something good happening. She would say, praise the Lord. And uh, I mean, it would be something really little too. And I thought, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, praise the Lord. That was good, right? And that mentality we hope will continue with her because the good and perfect gifts that are from above, we too often take for granted. And when something goes well, we, we bank it up to chance. When th something goes bad, we wonder why God is testing us. And that's kind of how we figure out life. So if it's good, I think, you know, I'm just glad it's good. I'll take any moment I can get. If it's bad, it's like, okay, God, another trial. Here we go. Thanks a lot. But you see those good and perfect gifts, those moments of blessing, those circumstances. And by the way, genuine true worship is going to come even when those bad things happen. So when bad things happen, where is your worship focused? We get frustrated with God. We get exasperated with God. We tend to segment our worship where we think that we have a, a spiritual life and we have a secular life. And so I'll, I'll check out this book bag and leave it here because that's my spiritual life. And I, I may pick it up on Friday, definitely by Sunday. Um, and now I go to my job, go to my school, go do all my things. And maybe I'll stumble across my, my spiritual backpack by, by midweek, by Wednesday. 
Or some weeks we'll show up on midweek service and I'm like, spiritual thing, no way. I'm going to still be carnal. And, and, and unfortunately, we segment our worship. That's where God's trying to teach us that we are to be worshiping consistently. His disciples, his inner core, his true guys, this was not something that they would check in and out. And then last, we're to worship exclusively. We have been called to be living sacrifices, Romans 12. And as that living sacrifice, we are to do the work and the will of God. And he has equipped us and he's called us. And we are to worship Christ alone. And we are not give us this idea and thought when we're looking at following other gods. And he, he guided us through Exodus 34 and we saw the jealous God. His name is Jealous. And Adrian helped us to, te- to realize from God's word and taught us through that passage that there are a lot of things in our life that take our energy, our focus, and our worship. And when they take our worship and their, our energy, we're passing on that to other generations. It doesn't take you long to find out people who make baseball a higher priority than God when on Sunday morning they're sitting in Waffle House eating their bacon, eggs, and their toast before their Little League baseball game takes place. You know what that tells their 13-year-old baseball player? That baseball, for a season of time, is more important than God will ever be in your life. Now, for some of us, that's hard to hear because we have a hard time balancing some of those things. When I grew up in my home, it really wasn't even an option. You see, I, didn't, I had to miss Little League practices on Wednesday night because mom and dad wanted to make sure that I was in church on Wednesday night. Playing a baseball game on Sunday morning wasn't even in the thought process. Like, like how could something substitute God? Oh, but preacher, we can worship God Monday through Saturday. Yeah, you're right. But you know what? Your child is going to remember this experience a lot longer after you're put in the grave. And they'll begin to make decisions for your grandchildren where God will not be as important as you thought God was to you. So here is this worshiping exclusively. I was having this thought the other day that I, I wondered if, if American Christianity is really what God had envisioned with the early New Testament church. Because what we live for and what we strive for is comfort. I want to be comfortable. If that air conditioner goes out in the next 10 minutes, I'm wrapping up and praying we're out of here. <laughs> we want comfort We want ease, we want unity, we don't want conflict, and we want everything that we can take in that boosts our enjoyment of life. Because, I mean, shouldn't we enjoy life? I mean, enjoying life puts a smile on my face, it helps me to get along with people, it helps my kids to see some sense of happiness. I mean, I want them to be happy, and so if they whine and they cry on Sunday morning, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to feed what it is that will comfort them and ease them. And all of a sudden, there's so many things in our life as Americanized Christians that become our sole focus. And really being sold out to Jesus Christ has a tendency to take a back burner. And we have to be so careful. And by the way, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. There's a big old wall. Everything I'm saying is smacking me right back in the face. So I'm ready to be quiet with this because I really don't want to think even to that point of how my life is lived in that way, that if it's convenient, I'm all in, God. Hey, I'll be the first one on the line. If it's comfortable, yeah, that'll work. 
if it's got some energy and emotion, if it's got some, some life to it, it brings happiness and it, it brings a sense of joy, then, then I'm all in. But when the moment comes that waters get a little rough or sacrifice is the call, I don't know. I'll, if there's still room on the list after a week, then maybe pencil, pencil me in at the moment. So here he says to worship God exclusively. So the, the story of the triumphal entry, it's, it's really just the beginning of a very long week for Jesus. He is going to sacrifice everything. And, and we ridicule the disciples because when rubber meets the road, they all run, except for John. And we think, I would have never done that. I would have never have deserted Christ. But sometimes we do even today. So in the preparations for what he would encounter, we see Christ is still busy doing the work of the Father. He is teaching, visiting, healing, praying. He never lost sight of his mission. And so remember that your worship is a small part of touching the eternal. Your worship is a small part of touching the eternal. So how is your worship life? Do you only worship when it is convenient? Is your worship temporary and selective? Is your worship mundane? To be missional with your worship. 